Before I begin this morning, I'll tell you a story. During the age of the Puritans, the message would be somewhere in the vicinity of two hours. That sends shivers down the spine of many of our modern church folk. And one day, one of the Puritans was preaching, not a well-known individual, not one that you would recognize his name, not a Goodwin or an Owen, not even not even the tinker himself, John Bunyan, but a Puritan nevertheless. And he realized while he was preaching, he was well past the hour. And he paused and he stopped and he began to apologize for the length of the sermon. And there was an uproar from the congregation calling upon him to continue to preach, to preach. We wish to hear the word of God. And as I study the lives of individuals in the Puritans, I realized that during that period, there was such a hunger. There was such a hunger for the Word of God. That people were willing to sacrifice time. During Geneva's sojourn with Calvin, he would preach every day to a full assembly. They would come during their lunch hour, they would come in the evening, they would come in the morning before work began, and they would be there on the Lord's Day because there was a hunger. So my prayer for the new year is that there would be a a hunger so that God would fill our mouths, our hearts with good things. The incarnation of the Son of God accomplished much more than the salvation of souls. It initiated a global transformation through the inauguration and manifestation of the kingdom of God, whereby Jesus could say that the kingdom of God is at hand. We're all coming to reading coming from Exodus in chapter 19. Exodus in chapter 19, the first six verses, the first six verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. As the covenant is proposed and accepted by God's people. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Matthew, recording the words of Jesus the Christ, in Matthew in chapter 4, one verse only this morning, one verse only for our new covenant reading, verse 23. By the same spirit, Matthew says this, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. The gospel of the kingdom. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day even the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the Old Testament, as far back as the fall of the Garden of Eden, God declared his intentions that he would deliver his created order from the curse of sin. And throughout each and every one of the scripture verses, every one of the prophets, every one of the patriarchs, in explicit detail, he laid out exactly how he would accomplish this, along with why he would accomplish this. 
For God so loved the world, God so loved the created order that He decided in order to preserve that which He had originally said was good, He would give His only begotten Son. And while the method behind how He would accomplish this was the most astonishing and glorious thing, a.k.a. the Incarnation, along and coupled with the crucifixion and resurrection, it is the why, why God would do this. That was the key. Because God loved what He had made. And he would not have it destroyed because of one man's disobedience, because of of one man's sin, of one man's rebellion. He would not have Adam, a man created from the dust. He would not have him destroy everything that God had said was good. So God would accomplish his plan for the global liberation from sin and death through his promised Messiah. First, to show that man cannot attain perfection without his indwelling spirit. And secondly, to vindicate his majesty and his righteousness because one man had fallen into sin. Now the mission of the Messiah was twofold. Number one, to establish a people for himself as his heavenly army. And secondly, to vindicate the name of God by establishing his supremacy on earth, not only in time and in history, but universally among men and nations for all eternity. So by virtue of the person and the work of the Messiah, the Lord Christ, God establishes an army. He calls them the people of God, the kingdom of His righteousness. An army of redeemed souls who are committed, who are committed, hunger and thirst at the righteousness, and therefore they are committed to the glorification of God in Christ, as well as the vindication of His majesty and the universal dominion, the universal dominion conquest upon the entire global order. In Isaiah 46, Yahweh reproves idolatrous mankind, and that's what mankind is. They're idol factories. They they manufacture all kinds of idols. So in Isaiah 46, Yahweh, God himself, reproves idolatrous mankind and promises to bring to pass his eternal plan. Notice Isaiah 46, verse 9 and following. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. So everything that God says He will do, He does, even bringing forth Christ the King. So the promises of God, all of them have been spoken and recorded throughout the scriptures by the prophets and the apostles, prophesying of what would come to pass as a way, and this is important, as a way to prove that He is God, number one, and that when God finally carries out His plan, men will have to agree that whatsoever God had appointed would actually come to pass. So God is saying, I'm going to say it now, I'll bring it to pass later so you know that I'm God because no one else could do this. The promises of God have been spoken and have come to pass so that we would be assured that God is exactly who He is. That means that the promises of of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and every other dominion promise will become a reality once Messiah reveals Himself to the world as the King of nations. Not the babe in the manger, but the King who had come. That event, that incarnation event, that event bringing about and bringing on earth the king has already happened. That advent is so critical to the transformation of the world. It has happened and it is happening throughout our history because Christ is not only born the king, he still remains the king. So God has revealed himself to the world by this incarnation event. In other words, the prophecies concerning the coming of the great king have been fulfilled and the promise that he will establish his kingdom on earth and crush the head of the serpent is finally in effect, in real time, in our time, and it will continue until he is totally and comprehensively victorious. And at that time, the end will come. But not before he's totally victorious. We might say that we are living in the era where all that has been promised by the Old Testament prophets are either have materialized or are materializing. Through the sacrifice of Christ and the engineering of the Spirit's work in 
providentially orchestrating all things and the energizing of that spirit coupled with the work of the faithful church, the eternal church, the organic church, the, the invisible church, the kingdom of God is materializing before our very eyes. Every time someone is born again, the kingdom of God is advancing. Every time someone else is translated from the kingdom of, of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God is advancing. And this is what the Lord has come to establish. And then through His church, advance His rule until the entire world becomes the kingdom of God and of His Christ. That's what we're looking for. And that's what John saw in the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation 12. Notice what he says in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accuses them before our God day and night. So John is telling the saints that salvation, strength and the kingdom has come to them by the work of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Note how John adds that the power of His Christ has also come and strength in the kingdom of God. He says, and the power has come. This speaks of the power of God the Holy Spirit which Christ sent at Pentecost to empower His church. And the empowerment of the church was to bring about a cultural dominion through the building of the kingdom. Note how Paul identifies the empowering Spirit of God as Christ's empowering, not only empowering, but notice he calls it the liberating power, the liberating entity. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty from the bondage of sin and death. Liberty from tyranny of men. A comprehensive liberty. John is also careful to tell the saints that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. In other words, no longer can God's righteous law accuse them of sin for they have been forgiven. Nor can any false accusation from wicked men, their unjust insinuations or governments be validated for the saints have been liberated by the Spirit, justified and made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. So no one can accuse us. As long as we are walking in the righteousness of Christ, we cannot be accused by wicked men or nations. Paul makes mention of this when he tells the church at Rome that there can no longer be any accusation or condemnation against the just. Notice Romans chapter 8. There is therefore, even though in chapter 7 he's condemning himself because of the sin that still is working within him, he finally says, there is therefore, in other words, there is therefore, in light of what I just said in Romans chapter 7 about the sin that is ever so plaguing me, there is therefore now no condemnation, no accusation, in other words, to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So in regard to the accusations by wicked men, Paul adds this, for I am persuaded, verse 38 of the same chapter, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these acts of justification are real. And since justification is a legal act declaring a sinner righteous, they are measurable. So when a sinner is declared righteous, they're measurable. They're real. In other words, by virtue of God's election and Christ's atoning sacrifice, the sinner is legally declared guiltless before the throne of God's judgment. The manifestation of justification, however, comes by way of sanctification because sanctification is the fruit of the justified sinner. As we grow in grace, we look at sanctification as growing in grace. That's the fruit. It's the manifestation of the act of justification. It's the act of God working upon an individual. And part of that sanctification is shown in our hungering and thirsting, our hungering and thirsting after righteousness, our hunger after the Word of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So part of our justification, part of the fact of our new birth, is manifested by our hungering and thirsting. And this means that those who are redeemed will see a growth in our hunger, a measurable, manifested desire to do the will of God and then act upon the will of God in a positive way. In other words, sanctification is not just a ho-hum, now I'm saved, now I can do what I want to do. It has to grow. 
if we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the scriptures tell us, then we must be hungering more and more and more. Not being satiated to the point where we don't hunger anymore. No. The more we eat the word of God, the more we understand the word of God, the more we're hungering after it. The fact of justification comforts the sinner, knowing that even though he fails in his obedience from time to time, he's nevertheless loved by God. The justified sinner is a child of God with fellowship and communion. And when the loving father sees the failures of the child, when he sees that you're struggling, out of love for that child, out of love for his people, he shows pity by comforting them and strengthening them in order that they would be regrouping and walking obediently and regaining that hunger. When, however, the child sins, often willfully, the father shows his love, that eternal love, by correcting the child. Sometimes he does this by taking the comfort of assurance from them. So he deals with the child as a a loving father, humbles the child so that he might be instructed in the way of righteousness. And that's the pastor's mission. To expound the word of God, to exegete the word of God so that you would understand the father's love, both when you are walking obediently and when you are sinning and how it all works. To encourage you to to hunger and thirst after righteousness. To love the Lord your God and to love to hear the word of God and to love to see the word of God expounded and, 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 and magnified among the people. God's action of indwelling brings the individual to hate sin. That sin that remains ever so active in the individual. And when it takes hold upon us, we are horrified. We don't make excuses for it. We don't coddle ourselves. We're horrified because of it. And then we seek to repent. And we strive against sin. We pray. We confess. We beat down our bodies. We put away the sin and we put on righteousness. We put off and we put on and that's a daily event. And the love of God is what moves us to that action. So once you have a sinner justified by Christ's work and sanctified by His Spirit, they will seek to apply the Word of God to every area and institution of life and seek to change those areas that are at enmity against the Lord and against His Christ, beginning with themselves, then their family. And here's the progression. Starts with yourself, then with your marriage, then with your family, then in the church, then in the community, and then it goes out into the world. You don't start with the community and let your family just fall apart. All the believer's hope for eternal life resides outside of themselves in the Lord Christ. These are all measurable manifestations. We call this the experimental, the experimental manifestation. All measurable manifestations of the work of God in the real world among real people. So you ask the question, do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do I want to do God's will? Do I want to learn? Do I want to study? Do I want my children to grow up to be pillars in the church, pillars in the community from God's vantage point? Now consider the word of the Lord to Moses in Exodus 19:5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, notice the if, and keep my covenant, then, if and then, you shall be a peculiar treasure. Now that word peculiar is peculiar to be translated peculiar because it's actually the word purchased. He bought you. The Hebrew word there is bought. He purchased you. You are a purchased treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom. We are a holy nation. And these are words which, which God tells Moses. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This is what the pastor should be telling the people of God. You are the kingdom of God. And this proves that the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets knew all about God's kingdom before Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom, before he said the kingdom of God has come unto you. They were aware of God's kingdom. They were aware that it was real and that it already existed upon the earth, albeit in a localized fashion within the tribe of Israel. In fact, it was the tribe of Israel that was identified as the kingdom of God. But to be more precise, the kingdom consisted of those redeemed souls that acted as priests before God. And this kingdom, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's not an idea. It's not simply an idea. It's a real manifestation of a real entity on earth in time and in history 
Even as far back as Exodus, the kingdom was a real physical manifestation within the time of Israel's sojourning. When Christ stated that the kingdom of God was at hand, He assures the people that it was at hand. And He assumes that the kingdom was a fixed reality and which His hearers were most likely familiar with because they would have known when He said the kingdom of God is at hand. They knew what that meant, those who were astute at least, because they remember what Moses said to Israel, that you are a kingdom of priests. Theologian Gerhaz Voss says this, The Old Testament knows of a kingdom of God as already existing at that time. Apart from the universal reign exercised by God as creator of all things, Jehovah initially has his special kingdom in Israel. In affirming that the kingdom is at hand, Christ, moreover, ascribes to it the character of something forming out of that world of prophecy which moves outward through the ages to its divinely appointed goal of fulfillment when the kingdom is taken dominion. That's the fulfillment. When all the earth bows to the Lord God Almighty, when, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and the only way they can do that is by the Spirit. The Old Testament kingdom, while a real manifestation of the righteousness of God, manifested by and in His people, was localized within the nation of Israel. But once Christ came, it became universal. The kingdom of God had as its foundation God's law. Its civil and religious laws were prescribed by God's revelation along with its judicial penalties. And these are what the, and these are what made the kingdom of God the kingdom of God. That they were precisely from the lawmaker, the lawgiver, the judge, the king himself. And the kingdom of God's laws were to be the prototype of what other nations should follow. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Notice, behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land, whether you go to possess it, because this is your wisdom, this is your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You see, this was the prototype for all nations. God's law is the prototype for all nations. Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but rather it is framed upon that which is righteous, holy, just, and good. Now these are the components which result in peace and joy. Notice what Paul says. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Israel was to evangelize the nations of the world so that they would become integrated into the kingdom of the Lord, becoming part of the kingdom of God, by the act of justification and sanctification. Now, once, however, Israel apostatized, God rent the kingdom from them. They were no longer to be priests unto him. They were no longer a holy nation before him. Instead, he then goes out into the nations of the world, into the Gentile kingdoms, and he brings upon the Gentiles his grace, and they become the kingdom of God. And that's why the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is so essential. Israel compromised to the point where the kingdom of God, that they were supposed to be, became the kingdom of man. And that's what's happening to the church of Jesus Christ today. The church of Jesus Christ is more the kingdom of man than the kingdom of God. So whenever the people of God are called to be the kingdom of God apostatized by becoming worldly, the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom of man. The kingdom's stability and its power to advance is based upon the fidelity of the people of God, the hungering of the people of God, the empowerment by the Spirit to the people of God. Without the power of God upon the people of God, because of their hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the people of God could not maintain any kind of integrity of kingdom advancement. That's what happened to Israel. They could not any longer maintain the integrity of the kingdom. And, but all that would change. All that, however, would change with the coming of the universal king, who would usher in a universal kingdom. And this happened, of course, at Pentecost. In order to energize the kingdom of God so that it could successfully re-establish Eden, restoring Eden, where the kingdom of the earth would be translated into kingdom of God and his Christ, a paradigm shift had to occur. And that paradigm shift begins at the incarnation, moves forward to the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and then is empowered by Pentecost. And that shift was at Pentecost. The shift began with the advent and moved forward to the effectual empowering of the nations through God's work at Pentecost. 
Isaiah calls this the shaking of the earth, where God comes to shake the kingdoms. In the second chapter of Isaiah, God anticipates the coming of the Messiah with the identifying phrase, the day of the Lord. And at that time, God promises to universally destroy all men and nations who continue to rebel and to be as God. Notice what he says. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon, they that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower and every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the hardiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. All the idols shall be utterly abolished and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. That's Pentecost right there. In that day, in that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each one for himself to worship in the moles and to the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. That was Pentecost. This verse anticipates that paradigm shift which took place in A.D. 33. Now John relates to this vision. John in Revelation chapter 6 looks back to what God had done. Notice what he says. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as the fig tree casted her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Notice the mighty wind in reference to the Spirit. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And, and, and the mountains and the islands... Figures of men, figures of mankind, figures of their, their security, of their strongholds, which are worldly, not, not literal mountains, not literal islands. And the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Remnants of Isaiah. He's pulling from Isaiah. And said unto the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. So when did Christ sit on the throne? When he ascended. So he's talking about what God is doing. He's condemning the wicked in time and in history as he's building the kingdom of God. And from the wrath of the Lamb for great is the day of his wrath. The day of his wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? John is not referring to the end of the world here, but referring to the fearful disposition of men and nations as a result of the coming of the Messiah who in Psalm 2 has called all the kings to bow before him and flee from the wrath to come. The day of God's wrath is actually the day of Messiah when he comes to vindicate God's name and restore the earth to its original glory. Note what happens when he comes. Note what is expected. Psalm 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. That is happening today as we preach the gospel. Notice, ask of me, verse 8. Of Psalm 2. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Where did Jesus go after Israel forsook him? He went to the heathen. He went to the nations. The word heathen there is nations. And the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. Notice, the totality of the earth is going to be given to Christ and is given to Christ for his possession. And thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is happening today. But the church of Jesus Christ is falling apart because they don't believe that they can have victory. Notice Isaiah adds to this in the 13th chapter where God again is declaring how he will take universal vengeance upon the wicked. Notice, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of the way. But the stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogance of the proud to cease, and I will lay low the hardiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, than fine gold, even a man that the golden wedge of, than the golden wedge of Ophir. Notice. Therefore, verse 13. I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place 
in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. He's talking about what God is doing. In Isaiah 24, God uses metaphorical language to describe the extent of the shift once Christ enters into history with the spirit of Pentecost. Notice again, the reference of the shaking. Fear and the pit, this is Isaiah 24, 17, and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth, and it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snares. The windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. The transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again, and it shall come to pass in that day. What day? The day of the Lord. The day when the Lord comes. That the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high, and the kings of the earth upon the, on, upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners. Notice, here is what the Apostle Paul was telling the church, that Christ has come to cast down all principalities and powers and rulers in high places. This is the prophecy of Isaiah coming to pass because of the Christ in his first advent. Now this language also reminds us about the time when Christ hung on the cross. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened. The stars did not give her light. So John is connecting all of these ideas, all of these verses together, even in Revelation chapter 6, where Christ says to the mountains and the rocks that they will be falling upon the wicked, and the wicked are lamenting that the rocks will not hide them from the wrath of him who sitteth upon the throne. Notice, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks fall upon us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the land. For great is the day of his wrath. It is come and who shall be able to stand? Another clue as to the timing of this is found in the phrase from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. And again, when did he sit on the throne? After his ascension. So this messianic rule is what the church needs to understand is not a future event, but rather an ongoing event throughout the New Testament age, which has, had, is now, and will have measurable results. But I don't see it. Because the church is falling into the same snare as Israel Referring to the kingdom, notice what Jesus declares, Matthew thirteen thirty one and 2. Another parable he set forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that all the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. In other words, he's referring to the timing of the kingdom entrance into history on a universal level, and he says this in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's upon you. 2,000 plus years ago, the kingdom of God was at hand. Not coming in the future. So, how is the progress of the kingdom to be measured? What are we going to look for? What do we look for as a mark of progress? Well, the kingdom's advancement and the influence it has upon individuals, human institutions, the culture, and the world, that's what we look for. The kingdom's advancement and its influence on people, families, churches, institutions, the culture at large, the entire world. That's what we are to look for as far as progress. The kingdom of God, remember, is synonymous with the elect, the church. If we desire to advance the kingdom of God, we are to first influence people who will in turn establish godly families, advance the influence of the church in their community, and then into the world. So it begins with the preaching of justification by faith alone and the sanctifying power of the Spirit upon the life of an individual, a family, a church, and a community. So how do you do that? Well, here's where the rubber meets the road. How do you do that? Well, you can do it in a number of ways. Evangelistically, we are to increase the boundaries of the kingdom, that's how you advance the kingdom, by gathering into the kingdom believers by preaching the word of God. We can begin with our children. 
Because if you have children and they become Christians, I hope you understand that they were just not born Christians, unless they're born again. But you preach to the children. You teach them the things of God. You advance the kingdom that way. So at every time a child is born again, you're advancing the kingdom of God evangelistically. This enlarges the kingdom. This maximizes its influence. This is the essence of dominion. The more people comprising the kingdom, the larger the kingdom, and the more dominion influence it has upon the kingdom, and upon the church, and upon the culture, upon people in general. And this is to be continued until every soul, every soul is gathered into the kingdom of God. And this is what Isaiah anticipated. And this is what Paul confirmed when he said, I have sworn by myself, God speaking, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee should bow. Notice, every knee should bow and every tongue shall swear. I'm not going to stop until every knee bows and every tongue swears. That's what Paul said to the church at Rome in Philippi. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, quoting from Isaiah, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess. Wherefore God had also highly exalted him, Christ, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And that word should is the word shall. Every knee shall. In the Greek, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the only way they could do that is by the Spirit. Secondly, we are to advance the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, by influencing every institution and area of life with the truth of God's word by getting involved in various institutions of the culture. This is known as Christian reconstruction or the reconstruction of the culture. Make no mistake about it, everyone wants to reconstruct the culture according to their image. Why not the Christian? There's nothing to be regarded outside of Christ's rule. So far, what we have seen in the last 2,000 plus years is the dramatic influence of the gospel upon not only individuals and Western civilization, but upon the entire known world. And this should be an encouragement. When we really want to look at the data, the gospel is advancing. Maybe not in America, but the gospel is advancing. And that should be an encouragement. The darkness of our age here in America does not diminish the fact that the kingdom is still advancing. People are still getting saved. The kingdom is still going forward victoriously, triumphantly. Consider first the impact of Christianity on the value of human life. If we were still living in a pagan world, none of what I'm about to say would ever have happened. So, consider the impact of Christianity on the value of human life. The concept of universal human rights and equality comes exclusively from the biblical idea that people are created in the image of God. Everyone is created in the image of God. Women, in ancient cultures, a wife was the property of her husband. Aristotle said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. According to the book of Reason for God by Tim Keller, he says, it was extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure because of the low status of women in society. The church forbade its members to do so. Greco-Roman society saw no value in an unmarried woman, and therefore it was illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. But Christianity was the first religion to not force widows to marry. They were supported financially and honored within the community, so that they were not under great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to. Pagan widows lost all control of their husband's estate when they remarried, but the church allowed widows to maintain their husband's estate. Christians did not believe in cohabitation. If a Christian man wanted to live with a woman, he had to marry her, and this gave women far greater security. Also, the pagan double standard of allowing married men to have extramarital sex and mistresses was forbidden. In all these ways, Christian women enjoyed far greater security and equality than did women in surrounding cultures. So you want to go back to paganism? You want to go back to worldliness? Women? That's what you get. Christianity was also concerned with missions of mercy. Missions of mercy to the poor, missions of mercy to the needy. For example, Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan is a classic illustration that is still part of our language today. We think about Good Samaritan things. We do Good Samaritan work. Christian charities. Think about Christian charities. They stand out far above and beyond state-run charitable institutions. They're more productive. They're more profitable. 
In proof of this, D. James Kennedy points to Mother Teresa, the Salvation Army, religious hospitals. Think about hospitals, St. John's Hospital, St. John's University, St. Mary's Hospital, the Good Samaritan Hospital up in New York. They were started by Christian missions, Christian ministries. Mother Teresa, the Salvation Army, church-supported soup kitchens, thrift shops in every community. And you know the Goodwill thrift shops. You ladies are always in there looking at it. Where did that come from? The goodwill of Christian folk. Kennedy says this, Jesus has had such an enormous impact on charity that one wonders how different things would be if he had never been born. Dinesh D'Souza points out, quote, This is our culture's powerful emphasis on compassion, on helping the needy, and on alleviating distress, even in distant places. If there is a huge famine or reports of genocide in Africa, most people in other cultures are unconcerned. Concerning marriage and the family, Christianity is the core of humanity's stability. Christianity is humanity's stability because of marriage and the family. Because before the Christian era, homosexuality, cohabitation, fornication, mistresses, none of those things were considered wrong. Pedophilia, that wasn't wrong either. And again, D'Souza comments. Christianity exalted heterosexual monogamous love, which would provide the basis for a lasting and exclusive relationship between husband and wife oriented toward the rearing of children. We take the family so much for granted, he says. It remains such a powerful ideal in our society, even when actual family life falls short, that we forget the central premise on which it is based. Those premises were introduced by Christianity into a society to which they were completely foreign. And you wonder why the pagans now want to destroy the family. Why the institutions want to destroy the family. Work... 90 hours a week and maybe you'll have some time with your wife and your children and you wonder why the divorce rate is out of this world. In the era of education, again, Christianity leads the way. The phenomena of education for the masses has its root in the Protestant Reformation. Not just Christianity alone, but Protestant Reformation. In order to promote biblical literacy, Christians have been leaders in education and they still are in America. The first law to require education of the masses was passed by the Puritans. It was a law. Let's educate the masses using the Bible. The law was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. This act was a reference to the devil who Christians believed got his foothold into the people's lives because of their ignorance of Scripture. They wanted the people to hunger and thirst after righteousness, so they gave them the Word of God. They expounded the Word of God. They made them read the Word of God. And for the first 200 years in America, children's reading texts emphasized biblical literacy. The emphasis on literacy was so intense in colonial America that John Quincy Adams said in the early 1800s that the illiteracy rate was only four-tenths of one percent. By comparison, it has been estimated that in America today... 40 million people are functionally illiterate. Why? The demise of Christianity and the rise of government schools. All but one of the first 123 colleges in colonial America were Christian institutions. And while these universities have lost their Christian identities, it is interesting to read some of their founding statements, such as Harvard was founded on this statement, Harvard, the, the hub of, of Marxism and liberalism and progressivism. Here's what they had as their founding statement. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. In the area of government, America's first constitution was the fundamental orders of Connecticut. The Puritan framers of this document required of each aspect of it be grounded in scripture. Other constitutions followed that as well. At least 50 of the 55 signers of the United States Constitution were, in some regard, professing Christians. There's no doubt that the concept of our constitution's checks and balances, that system is a direct result of the biblical doctrine of the sinfulness of man. And all of our founding 
fathers, the founders, they understood the importance of this doctrine to the social order. America's foundational idea of the rule of law rather than the autonomy of man traces back to the Old Testament beginning with the Ten Commandments. The idea that all men are created equal as enshrined in the Declaration of Independence is a biblical foundational document. It's a doctrine that God has put in the Bible and they draw it out. They drew it out because of their influence of Christianity. The notion of sovereign authority, the sovereign authority of God is mentioned in the Mayflower Compact and in all 50 state constitutions rather than the sovereignty of the state is certainly biblical. The existence of moral absolutes it's a biblical concept, moral absolutes, a biblical concept is an important idea in our Declaration of Independence specifically when Jefferson says, self-evident truths and unalienable rights from the Creator. Many other aspects of our laws come directly from Scripture. Get rid of Scripture, you get rid of society. Regarding civil liberty, John Adams and others emphasized 2 Corinthians 3.17 as the basis for Americans' civil liberties. The slogan on the Liberty Bell comes from Leviticus 15.10, proclaiming liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Free enterprise, and the work ethic is also a Christian idea. Private property rights also trace to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. According to the website Faith Facts, they write this. While Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations was written in 1776, the same year as the birth of America, many historians credit theologian John Calvin from 200 years earlier as the person who is most responsible for putting together the principles that were always in the Bible into a system adopted by the American founders. So it goes right back to the Reformation. For example, they continue, the biblical doctrines of self-reliance and self-denial are the foundations of the famous Protestant work ethic. These doctrines are at the heart of our economic and political way of life. End quote. Think about what Christianity has done. We also see Christianity's mark on art and music and literature. The influence of Jesus on art, music and literature is so enormous. For example, the Christian faith has influenced literature in such Christian writers such as Dante, Chaucer, Don, um, uh, Don the, 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 uh, the poet Don, uh, Dostoevsky, even Shakespeare for the most part, as, as strange as he might be, Dickens, Milton, all had this influence. So had Jesus never been born there may never have been the development of a cantata or a concerto or a symphony. Handel, Vivaldi, Bach were all Christians who worked to honor God with their music, with their work. Bach, for example, signed all of his works with the signature Sole Deo Gloria, solely to the glory of God. Faith Facts adds this, art has likewise been magnificently impacted by Jesus. While much modern art seems to debase the human spirit, classical Christian art tries to bring out the best of mankind, pointing us to a higher plane. This is certainly a tribute to Jesus. And think of all the incredible architecture through the years, especially noteworthy are the beautiful cathedrals in Europe. Now, consider how paganism is slowly overturning Christianity's influence, especially here in America, thanks to the government schools, thanks to the apostate churches, Human life is now no longer sacred, but expendable for any reason whatsoever. There is also little compassion left among the populace for others now that the epidemic of individualism, which is far worse than COVID, the epidemic of individualism and selfishness has taken humanity by the throat. Marriage in the family is now being assaulted, even among those professing Christianity. I just saw in a post just the other day that this couple, this wonderful married couple ministering for all these years and, and influencing Christian people all over the world, they're getting a divorce and they're thanking God for it, his, his great time while they were married, while they were able to serve God, but now they need to get a divorce. Go figure. Education has become pagan. A pagan indoctrination where God has not only been taken out of education, but he has been replaced with anti-Christian ideas and the prophecies of men who would be God. And that's why our young people are so confused. Government has been restructured from the Christian view of Romans 13 to a manipulative, tyrannical, slavish model reminiscent of ancient Rome. Free enterprise as well is now either restricted or taxed to the point where it's prohibitive, welfare is pandemic, and even encouraged by the state along with the church. 
art, music, and literature. You know, that's why churches don't have deacons' funds. So they're building, they're building projects. You should only have a building project if you have a, a deacon's fund. Or if people are willing to help those who are in need. Think about art, music, and literature. It's a hotbed of perversion and, and the declaration that whatever man thinks is good, then it must be good. Man determining good and evil for himself apart from God. Now it must be noted that the only way Christianity was able to take dominion over these areas of the culture was through the diligent effort of the organized community of Christians known as the visible church, within it the eternal church. The rise and fall of the culture is placed upon the shoulders of the church. We are commissioned to change the world for Christ. But we need to get serious. We get serious in our families, we get serious with our own devotions, we get serious with studying the Word of God. And I know I know some of you have confessed to me that you read the Bible and sometimes it's tough to, to get through all all the difficult language. But by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul says that God, knowing this, has given us pastors and teachers so that you would know what the Word of God teaches, that you would be encouraged, that you would be comforted, that you would be stirred in the depths of your spirit to follow the things of God. The fact that we see the crumbling of the culture around us is a clear testimony of the church's abandonment of her sacred task. And yet, Christ is still the sovereign Lord of all. He's the very same power that empowers each and every one of us by His Spirit. He's the very same God that empowered the saints at Pentecost in A.D. 33. And He offers that power to us today. I kid you not, we still have that power of victory if we would just act upon it. If we would take serious the training of our children, if we would take serious the study of the scriptures, if we take seriously loving our wives and our husbands and serving in the church and serving in the community, if we would only take God seriously, then things will change. But things will not change if we continue on the slippery slope that we have built for ourselves. May God once again grant to His eternal church the vision and the strength to recapture what she has lost before it's too late and we go into the darkness of despair for many generations. If you care about your children and your grandchildren, this is what you will do. You will be diligent, devout in the education and the evangelistic teaching of your little ones. May God be pleased to help us to take seriously our commission and then act upon it to the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.